Save for West Ham in place for England. Who knows? Just over a year's time, he might be standing on the same spot with the World Cup in his hand. the referee looks at his watch any second now it will all be over 30 seconds by our watch and the Germans are going down and they can hardly get up it's all over I think no it's and here comes Hurst he's got some people are on the pitch they think it's all over it is now up to the Royal Box to receive the Jules Rimet Cup and the winner's medals. To be here as winners of the FA Cup has often been described as the summit of a footballer's ambition. How much greater is the triumph they enjoy now. Hello and welcome to the third episode of the Knees Up Mother Brown West Ham podcast. This week we'll be breaking from our traditional format to bring you a Bobby Moore special, marking 20 years since the untimely death of West Ham's most highly decorated captain. Over the next hour you'll be hearing exclusive interviews with former teammates Harry Redknapp, Brian Deer and Sir Trevor Brooking. Former colleagues Jonathan Pearce and Hugh Southen, friend and biographer Jeff Powell, West Ham co-chairman David Gold, Russell Brand, Ben Shepherd, Mark Hunter and Ian Dale. Many of the fans who witnessed a footballing icon become a legend on the turf of Upton Park will be contributing too. Joining me, Chris Skull in the studio, as we look back on East London's favourite son, we have KUMB podcast regular James Longman. Hello. To continue the debate, please follow myself, CJ Skull, Skull with a C on Twitter. You can also follow James at Longers1 and, of course, KUMBDOTCOM on Twitter or use the hashtag KUMB. You can also, of course, debate this episode and all things West Ham on the KUMB.com forum. We begin first with memories of that tragic news in 1993 and a subsequent tribute to Upton Park. Firstly, Sir Trevor Brookin. You know, everyone was just so upset because, you know, I mean, he was the first of the 66 side, um, you know, to lose his life at such a young age. And uh, there's, you know, one or two, there was a long time before anyone else, you know, from that group passed away. And so I think in 93, um, we were all, you know, I think acknowledging if you're a West Ham fan, everything you've done for the club, you know, and in those years, um, he was the captain, you know, and, and really... Over 100 caps and 90 as captain. So, um, you know, I just think everyone um, wanted to acknowledge the part he played both for West Ham and England, really. One man who was out of the country when the news broke was Bobby's former Capital Gold colleague, Jonathan Pearce. Well, I was out, I was out of the country um, and I was away for... I didn't come back until 10 days afterwards, so I missed a great deal of it. Everything was taped for me. I watched the first... Uh, two minutes of film footage of the floral tributes and the scarves and the shirts outside Upton Park and after two minutes I just couldn't it was too I couldn't watch anymore it, I was just it was too hard for me to watch I've still got the tapes I've never watched them since it's just too it's still too raw it's still too you know I wasn't in Bobby's family I was I was a friend but uh, he had that effect on people but uh, I, I I thought it was a remarkable testament to the man the way the game came together, the way that the minute silence meticulously observed around the country, the way the football world 
came together. I think it was the first time, really, uh, that that happened. The football world came together for one man. Um, you know, it subsequently happened, but I don't even think it's happened to the same effect. I, I think it was just un, unparalleled, really. And uh, it just spoke volumes about his importance to, to the world game and, and his standing in the world game, really. David Gold. I didn't think that it was that he was honoured highly enough. I mean, the tributes were fine. Um, they were, at the t- again, at the time, it seemed to be okay. It's when I look back and think, I don't think enough was done. Uh, and that's why we're trying now to ensure that all, all of the um, shortcomings of the past are, are uh, corrected. Ian Dale. I remember that feeling of, of utter devastation on the day that he dies, February the 24th, 1993. I remember seeing the pictures of the scarves and uh, flowers and memorabilia that people put outside Upton Park, thinking, is there another footballer that could have engendered that kind of reaction? But long before his premature death at the age of 51, Bobby was to become a legend in Claret and Blue. Born in Barking in 1941, Bobby grew up not far from the bowling ground. Chief among his early influences was another claret and blue hero, Malcolm Allison. Bobby's friend and biographer, Jeff Powell. Malcolm was a uh, was a uh, tactical visionary, and uh, they, they would go after training sessions. Um, they would go to a little cafe in West Ham, get the salt and pepper pots out, and uh, a couple of the leading players of Malcolm and would sit around sort of making up games with 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 those condiments and talking about uh, what could be done to stop good players what could be done to exploit poor players what were the best shapes and formations to play in and i think he um he was responsible in some ways for igniting bobby's tactical awareness and his re- his extraordinary readership of the game which developed uh, down the years after making his debut in 1958 replacing his mentor Malcolm Allison, who was recuperating from TB, Bobby soon established himself in the team. Brian Deere was a teammate and in time a close friend too. He was a pleasure to play with and uh, as, you, as you know, he wasn't the quickest man in the world or the greatest header of the ball. Everybody's always saying that, but uh, his brain was a little bit better than everybody else's and his positional sense was fantastic and you know, the tackles he made were very decisive. Um, he was just really a natural for that position. Watching from the terraces, Hugh Southen. He was the most perfectly balanced, the most perfectly poised footballer I can ever remember seeing. I mean, I'd love football as a kid, but I just completely and totally fell in love with football completely when I saw Bobby play. David Gold. I can remember him in the early days when he first joined, you know, when he, when he started to come through. Almost instantly, you knew that this man was going to be a star. Oh, he's going to be a star. And of course, Bobby was a superstar. I mean, all of the others turned into stars, but uh, Bobby um, actually changed into a superstar. And, and he was just, it was just so exciting to see. Goals on Sunday's Ben Shepherd. You know, the thing that I get from, from the majority of people that got to play against him, and I talked to Cammy about him quite a lot recently because, of course, um, it's his anniversary. And the thing that Cammy said when he came up against him, uh, when Cammy was at Portsmouth and Bobby was at um, Fulham, was he just had this sense of calm about him. He never rushed anything and he just couldn't complete control all the time. 
you know, you knew you weren't going to go past him. The authority that he seemed to exude out of him on the football pitch, which, you know, you just have to watch. Bobby was becoming not only a fantastic defender, but also a world-class leader. Harry Redknapp recalls his leadership qualities as a captain. Yeah, he was great. He, as a captain, he was, he, was, he was quiet. He didn't, you know, he wasn't... He wasn't one for shouting and screaming at everybody. He got on, with, you know. He read. He got on with the game. He, he, if Bobby, if he did get upset with anyone, you knew you must have really got him upset because he was a very, very quiet, very shy guy. You know, away from, but also one of the lads. You know, when he let his hair down, he was great fun. Everybody loved being with Bobby. But as a captain, he, he was a quiet. He led by, I would say, he led by example more than, uh, more than shouting and screaming at everybody. You know. Brian Deer. Not very vociferous. Um, he really just captained the side with his leadership. You know, he led by the way he played. Uh, he was encouraging. Um, he never he never moaned and groaned at players. You know, he always felt that they'd done their best. Uh, sometimes, you know, your best is not good enough. But, you know, if, if there was ever a meeting or a dressing room, Sort of parlay. He was uh, he was always very good. You know, if, some, if he was asked a question, um, his answer would always be, you know, they give the, they've done their best, and you know, sometimes their best is not good enough. But just you know, he really led by example. The way he played, the way he conducted himself. So Trevor Brooking, you know, he <laughs> he was a, a leader by example. I think it's fair to say. Um, you know, he's, he wasn't one of those shouting and hollering captains, but, um, you know, had that sort of um, blonde hair that made him stand out as captain. And, uh, as I say, you know, one or two of those uh, sort of well, managers and players and coaches used to say you know, about his heading and his pace. Um, but for me, his, his great... I believe it was his, his football brain, really. I mean, he, his interceptions, his use of the ball... A lot of people at the club before me, you know, used to say that he used to practice afternoons, get a couple of the youngsters out there to get somebody throw it out from goal, and then his distribution from the back, which was a feature of his play, was something he'd worked on, you know, many an afternoon. Russell Brand from the LA Seaside. It's sort of like he seems inherently good, like Bobby Moore, like the name itself seems to sort of poetically indicate a degree of goodness and I suppose because his parade into management was brief, he's remembered primarily as a player. Bobby was soon blossoming as an international captain, taking the armband for the first time in 1963 at a tender age of 22. Hugh Southam. I turned and I said, Bob, what's it like then? Come on, just tell me. What's it like then to captain England? And he sat there and he didn't bat an eyelid and he said, well, he said, Captain England, he said, you carry the ball out, don't you? <laughs> I looked at him, I said, Bobby, what's it like, Captain England? He said, look, he said, when you reach that level of the game, he said, you're all the captains. He said, you should all be captains. He said, you should lead yourself. You know exactly what you're doing. We're all captains. He said, honestly, Huey, as far as I'm concerned, I carry the ball out. Three years of increasing success at Wembley for Bobby, West Ham and England began in 1964 when a claret and blue 23-year-old number six lifted the FA Cup for the first time in our history. A year later, in 1965, West Ham were back at Wembley for the final of the Cup Winners' Cup. Brian Deere on Bobby's pre-match advice for that final. You know, it was, it was a big occasion and 
it's very difficult to explain about these things because you know you you don't really remember too much of what's going to happen or what's happening at the time. But I do remember he came round and we was just chatting and he said, "How do you feel?" I said, "Well, no, I don't feel too bad because you know I'd only played it was only my fifth game in that competition out of the um, the nine tyres we played." So I said, yeah, I feel okay, I'm not too bad. He said, well, look, he said, just come out behind me. He said, uh, you'll be all right. He said, plus the fact, he said, you'll get your photo taken. He said, if you walk behind me. So, you know, he was quite a funny pastor at the time. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that photo, I, I, I think that photo I've got walking out is probably the best photo I've, I've got, you know, of football. Um, you know, it was you know, a big night, a big stadium, under a thousand people. You know, not that I was worried or afraid of, you know, what was going to happen, but uh, it just made it a little bit better. For the second year in a row, Bobby was lifting a trophy at Wembley, this time on a European stage. Brian Deere recalls the excessive celebrations that followed. Um, we didn't do anything. We went upstairs. We had a, some sandwiches and I think when the, the wives and a few beers and got on a coach and went home. Yeah, we went back to the ground and went home. That's just what it was like then. There was no, there was no fuss. I mean, it was even the same with the '66, wasn't it? I mean, they just went back to a hotel in London and went out in the balcony, and their wives were there. Some of them had a bit of grub um, afterwards. I mean, their wives weren't even invited to have a meal with them in '66, so they just had to sit in an ante room and have something to eat. And then some of them went out. Martin Peters, I know, never went anywhere in a bed. Soon, the year of 1966 was upon West Ham and England's captain a year in which Sir Alf Ramsey predicted England would win the World Cup. And win it we did, with Bobby putting in performances that were to cement his legacy as one of the greatest defenders in history. Jeff Powell. Certainly the best English defender and, in my view, the best defender the world's ever seen. Uh, and, you know, the record speaks for itself in a way. Um, the 1966 World Cup, he was the captain. Not only that, he was the, um, the player of the tournament. Uh, his exploits um, in... Brazil in uh, Mexico in 1970, most notably against Brazil. Uh, but overall, his 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 command of of great games at Wembley, uh, his leadership of the England team. But in uh, in terms of being a pure defender who had no need to kick anybody, whose timing and vision and reading and understanding of the game positioning was faultless. Um, he is um, an icon for all time. Ben Shepherd. Uh, the the World Cup final. In that moment towards the end of the game, we've we're, uh, we're just got 3 2 up, gets the ball, and I've watched it numbers of times. I just showed my little boys it recently, and then he boots the ball. You know, everyone's telling him to boot the ball out of play, and he, and he just, you know, picks out Jeff Hurst and sends the ball 40 yards up the pitch, and he runs and scores that exceptional fourth goal for England, his hat trick, and, and you know, that calmness, that sense of composure confidence is something that we'd be desperate to have at the back at West Ham now. He's, uh, he's truly an icon. Harry Redner. The only man to have captain England to win the World Cup. Maybe the only, certainly the only captain in my lifetime, I'm sure. And maybe in uh, in, in a long time. So he, he, he was always, you know, he'd always, he'd always be special. People never who were around would never forget 1966. It was, a, it was an amazing time, an amazing feat by the players and, and, and and especially Bobby. Mark Hunter. I just remember watching videos, obviously the iconic thing of England winning the World Cup, him being captain of that. 
and the iconic picture of you know him being held aloft on Jeff Hurst and Ray Wilson's shoulders. Um, you know, and he is kind of one of those people that you kind of you know the status is kind of you admire. Hugh Southam. It was just extraordinary being an English supporter, but first and foremost a West Ham supporter because let's be bloody fair about it. We've never let anybody forget it, have we? <laughs> we won it. But despite even captaining his country to success on the world stage, it didn't make Bobby any less humble. Jonathan Pearce. World Cup 66 wasn't about him. World Cup 66 wasn't about Peters and Hurst and you know, the goal scorers in the final. It was about George Cohen, Ray Wilson, Narby Styles, Jack Charlton. You used to talk about all of them. You used to talk about the people, the squad members, you know. The World Cups of 1966 and 1970 in many ways were to define Bobby and his greatness. Russell Brand. When I think of my recollections they're from really potent mem- moments of cultural iconography the shirt exchange moment with Pele where the two of them represent the absolute peak of defensive and offensive football and like him sort of looking every inch of bloke from Barking Pele the ragamuffin of and off the two of them together um, I think it's a uh, like uh, one of the great images in football and, and Bobby Moore of course notoriously appears in another great piece of English football in iconography him holding the loss of Jules Romain him the summit of that mountain range of great footballing colossuses that day there at Wembley David Gold Well it was, it was more than Bobby Moore at that time it was the fact that it was West Ham and it was you know the Peters scored the goal. Bobby Moore was the captain. Uh, Peters scored as well in the final. It was just somehow very exciting times. And remember, in those days, you didn't see tons and tons and tons of football on television. And here you were seeing, you know, a World Cup on television, albeit in black and white. But it was really, really exciting. And you know, and you made you proud as well. Not only were you proud because England were doing well. But you were proud because England's captain, Bobby Moore, my West Ham hero, was leading this uh, amazing and, and exciting tournament. But despite Bobby's modesty, there was no denying he'd become a global star. And if the occasion called for it, Bobby knew how to celebrate. Harry Redknapp. <laughs> he, liked, he liked the night out, Bob. He enjoyed the night out, that's for sure. He could go out with the best of them and... Uh and enjoy himself, you know, he knew how to enjoy himself, that's for sure. When he had a night out, you know, he had, yeah, he, he, he certainly knew he had a night out. You know, many's the day he'd come in training after a night out, especially on a Sunday morning. He used to always come in Sunday mornings and do a few sprints and do his do a few laps, put a wetsuit on, get a sweat on. He'd come in and uh, often he'd come in with dinner suit and his bow tie on still. You know, he'd been out with Tina or whatever the night before, so... No, he was, he was, he was, everybody loved being with him. He was great company and uh, you know, he was a fantastic, as I said, a fantastic player and a person. Brian Deer. Um, he was, a, he was a great pal. Um, you know, in, in, when it, when it was time to relax, he, he was good. He, he, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't a drunk or whatever, but he just enjoyed a beer and, you know, socially, that was what we'd done. I mean, we, we didn't have, uh, all the things that go on now, you know, in football these days, you've got all this commercialism and you, they've got their image rights and they're here, there and everywhere. I mean, we were more, I, I suppose, 
we were more for the for the fans. I mean, we we just went where they went. But going where the fans went on one occasion got Bobby into spot of bother. In January 1971, nationwide coverage was given to a story that Bobby had been in a nightclub in Blackpool the night before a 4 0 FA Cup defeat. His co accused, Clyde Best, Jimmy Greaves, and one Brian Deere. No, nothing really much. It was uh, other people could have been there. Plus the fact that, you know, there's been loads written about it, but we were just having a meal in the hotel. Um, and we just had a bowl up the road to Brian London's. We had a couple of beers. You know, I don't suppose it was the best thing in the world to do, but, you know, we weren't reading around drunk. I mean, there's never, ever been anything said in, in whatever was written about that. But um, we were just in the uh, right place at the wrong time, <laughs> or the wrong place at the right time. <laughs> but, um, I don't, you know, and plus the fact we got hammered, I didn't play in the game. But uh, I was there, so, you know, you have to... Take the, take the pill, didn't you, and uh, suffer the consequences. The incident, however innocent, certainly did much to damage the relationship between Ron Greenwood and his captain. Although, truth be told, that relationship was never as strong as that between Bobby and Sir Ralph Ramsey. Jeff Powell. There were a couple of elements uh, about that, of which the most important was uh, that Bobby wanted to develop the, uh, an edge of steel to West Ham. Ron was a purist. Um, uh, a, a great football teacher, uh, a man who uh, wanted the game played in a beautiful way and achieved that at West Ham, um, as, as we know, in many ways. Bobby also knew uh, that it was necessary to sometimes add a little backbone if you wanted to win the championship, and it annoyed him that he didn't win the championship. And he suggested one or two players that he felt uh, might have given a little ball-winning edge to the midfield or... Uh, maybe a little tougher tackling at the back and uh, Ron as a purist resisted that so that was a key part of of, of their disagreement uh, also Ron saw um, saw Bobby emerging as a as something of a celebrity in addition to football nothing on the scale of David Beckham of course but you know, he did become um, a big figure in the country and Ron was never comfortable with um with that kind of personality cult as he saw it. As I say, it was minor compared with what we see today, uh, but I think Ron felt that a footballer should spend his time on the training pitch, uh, um, which Bobby was happy to do. He was a, he was a consummate trainer, um, but should not be have any other distractions in his life. Bobby was a more rounded man than that, and so there, there was a personality uh, disagreement of sorts there. But the principal thing was uh, their... Um, uh, idealism for the team. Bobby, from time to time, flirted with the idea of leaving his beloved West Ham. Arguments with Ron Greenwood over pay and football in philosophy took their toll. One opportunity to leave came in 1973 when Brian Clough made a £400,000 offer for two players, Bobby Moore and Sir Trevor Brookin. Certainly Brian Clough had had contact with the club and, and Bobby and his agent and I think I was possibly uh, somebody he wanted to incorporate into that deal, but I never got round to talking to him because Ron Greenwood at the time <laughs> said that um, to his board that if uh, they allowed Bobby uh, and then involved myself in the deal, he would have left the club. And so the board at the time then backed away from it and said, well, you know, Ron was uh, a key for the 
West Ham style of play and so the deal then didn't progress so to speak so um, although I was told he was interested in me and I never actually met Cluffy or, or, or had a discussion because uh, it got um, curtailed when uh, when Bobby you know if, if he was allowed to leave Ron said he would leave the club himself But like all good things Bobby's West Ham playing career was to come to an end Bobby last played in the number six shirt that was to be retired in his honour some 22 years later, in January 1974. His new team, Fulham FC of the second division. But there was to be one last trip to Wembley as Fulham progressed to the FA Cup final of 1975. Their opponents, of course, West Ham United. In the West Ham team that day, Sir Trevor Brooking. We were playing against somebody who had sort of learned a lot of our... Uh, education from really or, or development. I mean, there's well, the other one who was was captain was of course Alan Mullery. So to play against you know a, a pair like that um, who were hugely respected, and of course from our point of view, um, it was strange to be playing. They were they were the underdogs. I mean, they were the Division One team, weren't they, or, or the equivalent uh, uh, of the Championship side now. Um, they'd been sort of. Uh, to a certain extent, uh, a bit like we were in 1980 when we were playing Arsenal, we we were relegated at that stage, and so were Fulham. So yeah, I think a lot of the neutrals would have liked to see two famous names and a, an underdog team uh, win it. But uh, they were a bit unlucky. You know, that the keeper Peter Miller sort of didn't hang on to a couple of shots, and we had a little lad called Alan Taylor who kept pop, popping up during the well, quarterfinal semis. He scored two goals, and of course in the final he did as well. So. Um, it was, you know, it was great for us uh, to, to win and um, strange enough, I think it was the last time an all-English 11 actually won the FA Cup, funny enough. As Bobby's playing career was fading into the sunset, he certainly had no shortage of friends, comprised of both teammates and opponents. Indeed, friends of Bobby will tell you he was as much a gentleman off the pitch as he was on it. His friend and colleague, Jonathan Pearce. Bobby was so easy with everyone he made you feel special right from the first moment you met him you, he made you he, he, he made you know he built you up as important as he was in any given situation your ideas were as valid as his your suggestions were as valid as his your thoughts on football were equally valid and he just put people at their ease and he treated the same he treated me the same way that he treated people he'd won the World Cup with great legends of the game and he was very, he was very, just, he was an unbelievable person, really. He was the finest man I've ever met, well, one of the finest man I've ever met in football, one of the finest I've ever met in, the, in, in life, really. Jeff Powell. There's a wonderful story about, after we unveiled the statue at Wembley, Big Jack Charlton went back on his own the next morning and stood looking up and chatting to the statue for over half an hour. Uh, and having done that, he said, well, I said, I just wanted to have another uh, chat with Moro the best man I've ever known. Hugh Southen. I found him an even greater man than perhaps he was a footballer. Jonathan Pierce. Well, when we used to go home, you know, to away games, we used to sit on a, on a wall somewhere or, you know, sit outside a fish and chip shop, stand outside a fish and chip shop, eating fish and chips from, from uh, you know, paper and, and uh, go to a cafe or, super, uh, or a service station cafe on the way, like ordinary fans, and he loved that. He loved that, you know, that, that side. Obviously, he'd never experienced that side as a player, and he really, he really enjoyed it. And uh, inevitably, fans would come up and talk to him, and 
and he talked he talked the hind leg off a donkey if they wanted to talk about football. If they were ever bothering him, he used to say, "We were on a train, you know. If we were on a train, if they were ever bothering him, he used to say, oh, you know, excuse me, boys, a man of my age.' to shut his eyes now and again. I must have forty weeks and close his eyes and pretend to be asleep until they'd gone and opened his eyes and <laughs> say, have they gone here, so and carry on the conversation.' But, um, yeah, because he was Bobby, they used to they used to sort of <laughs> take that on board. And it's funny, uh, he was a devil at cutting people up on the road and um, in his car, you know, and he used to. He used to be going down, you know, if you hit a traffic jam or something like that on the motorway, Bob would always be warring along the outside lane and cutting late. And then people would be honking their horns, and then as soon as they realised who it was, they'd pull up alongside him again, put an autograph book out the window and ask him to sign it, you know. One minute they were enraged with him, the next minute they thought he was Bobby Moore and they were enchanted again. He had the ability to enchant anyone. As soon as he entered the room, heads turned. In footballing retirement, Bobby yearned for the opportunity, the chance to become a manager. Let down by a promise by Elton John to become manager of Watford, Bobby searched for the opportunity to prove himself. But the right chance never came. Bobby struggled with disappointment at Oxford City, Southend United and in the Danish third division. Receiving his first job in coaching as assistant at lower league Oxford City, not, as was later discovered, Oxford United, was Harry Redknapp. Listen, you know, it's a lack of the game, this game. If you haven't got the right players and the right team... You've got no chance. You know, I'm not being dis... Eric Ferguson could go and manage a team in the lower reaches of the fourth division for 18 months and he might he might have forgotten all... He might not have made it and you'd have forgotten all about would have been the end of him. You know, he, he, he's the top man in our business. So, it, it could, you know, Bobby didn't really get a chance to manage at a club where he could make the success of it. He went to Southend where he had no chance whatsoever. Um, you know, so... Uh, and suddenly he's not a people then say, oh, well, he wasn't a manager. Well, he never got the chance. If he'd have managed West Ham, he may well have been the best manager West Ham ever had. Who knows? But uh, certainly he could have been a great manager. He was Everybody loved him. Everybody respected him. He knew the game inside out. So there was no reason he couldn't go on to manage if he'd have had the right players and the right team to manage. Jonathan Pearce. You know, people say, oh, he never made a manager. He was too nice. That's, that's such a rubbish. Um, he was never given really the chance at a club with resources. And um, I think he would have, he could have passed on his knowledge to, to footballers of any age. Bobby was beginning years in the footballing wilderness, unwanted by West Ham and shunned by the FA. Jeff Powell tries to make sense of the way he was treated in this period. Bobby became extreme, an extremely popular figure, um, uh, rising out of the preconception, preconception of footballers being almost like muddied oaths. And uh, I think there was resentment of that. Uh, within the game's establishment. Uh, there was not a will to see him continue in any role with the national team, which was a chronic waste of the man who could possibly, at the very least, have been um, the a great defensive coach for England. Um, people tended to try to uh, diminish his coaching abilities, but he was the youngest, and still is, I believe, the youngest player ever to uh, qualify for the full FA coaching badge did some sterling work with kids at Crystal Palace, but was basically kept away from the upper echelons of the game by an element of old resentment um, within the, the hierarchy of football. I have no doubt about that. David Gold. I just think that he wasn't respected enough during uh, after his playing time until he died. That's where I think the weakness was. Hugh Southen. It's an absolute sodding disgrace. Is this the way we treat our heroes? Is this the way they die? Drinking out of crap cups in, 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 in West Bromwich Albion's 
media room. Is this how we treat our people? Franz Beckenbauer, who captained West Germany um, in that losing final, became the greatest ambassador for German football ever. What do we do? We've got, we, we stick up a statue of the man when we've just completely ignored him for years and years and years. The establishment in this country and, and the FA and the rest of they ought to be utterly, totally and completely ashamed of themselves. David Gold. I think everybody let him down. I don't think it was just the FA and West Ham. I think it was the public. I think it was the media. I think it was the way of... It was a combination of two things. One, Bobby was extremely modest. So he wasn't somebody that would get on um, radio or television and tell a joke and be one of the chaps, you know? He was a gentleman. Uh, and it it didn't fit with driving his his personal you know his personality uh, was that of a gentleman and a, and, a, and a charming man today he would have been a superstar like a, a like a david beckham but in those days I, I, i'm afraid he uh, he fell through the cracks which is very 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 sad harry redner he was wasted really there was a man with such knowledge of the game who should have really west ham had the opportunity to have used him what an ambassador he'd have been for west ham and england but like most people, he, he was only it was only when he died that suddenly everybody wants to start naming stands after him and building statues. How he never got a knighthood, I'll never know. It, it baffles me. No disrespect to lots of other players or whatever who wouldn't have done anything near what Bobby did in the game. End up with getting knighthoods. Bobby and Bobby didn't. It's just I find it unbelievable. Really, it's it's scandalous. I think, but. Uh, uh, it'd have been, a, you know, Frank Beckenbauer, Bayern Munich, Bobby Cholton, Man United, Bobby Moore, West Ham. He should have been there, should have been ambassador, ambassador for the club and also, as I say, for England. Ian Dale. He never seemed to get the appreciation and recognition that he deserved. Obviously, we West Ham fans recognise him. We thought he should be Saint Bobby Moore, not just Sir Bobby. But the fact that the club never used his talents after he retired from football... The fact that he ended his days doing obscure commentaries for Capital Gold, the fact that nobody in the Football Association recognised him for what he was, a giant among men, says it all about football in those days. Now, we've moved on now. If Bobby was still alive today, I think he would be at the forefront of football. I think the Football Association would have embraced him. I think he would be the face of West Ham United now. Jeff Powell. The, the, the last residue of the um, uh, resentment might be a stronger word, but resistance to Bobby was that he wasn't knighted. Uh, there was time uh, when it was clear he was ill, but before he announced what exactly it was, when they could have got their act together and got him a knighthood just in case. And uh, they neglected to do so. So the greatest omission from the recognition of Bobby for everything that he represented in the game and what he represented to society, because he did—he was a, a stand-up figure for values and virtues which um, uh, sadly have not been that well protected down the years. Um, uh, but they neglected to recognise that, and I suspect—I've always suspected—and uh, and I believe he did too—that there was something deliberate about that. They had the the, the get-out clauses. Oh well, you know, um, um, he passed away before we could do it. I don't buy that. I think I think they'd have been forced to knight him um, if he'd lived through the last 20 years. 
because of course you know Jeff Hurst and people were knighted. Um, uh, but uh, at the time, I think it was deliberate. One man who was honoured with a knighthood, a role at the FA, and a managerial opportunity with West Ham was Sir Trevor Brookin. Why did he get the opportunities that Bobby didn't? Uh, well, I, don't, I mean, it's probably not fair to make those comparisons, I don't think. I mean, Bob was a wonderful player, and, um, you know, in any sort of uh, career, you know, there's, there's your playing career, and then there's, there's something after that. And, um, you know, you're in a different generation time. Um, Bob, when he finished playing, um, you know, he, he, he had a couple of people who were involved in businesses. I remember he, he did uh, a sort of, there was a, a, a sort of country club investment, and then he did some, he, he went into a, a, a sort of group of pubs that, um, um, they had Moros in Stratford. They, they did pretty well. Um, but Bob, as such, wasn't sure he wanted to go into coaching. He did a couple of little bits of coaching. And then, as I say, late on in his life, he, he then started to do a bit of uh, broadcasting on the Capital side, Capital Radio. And um, to be fair, I was starting to do quite well in that. And I, I met him once or twice. Jonathan Pierce, he used to do Capital Radio. And I think he was quite enjoying that. And of course, then, unfortunately... Um, he got ill at that particular time, and and when you think, you know, Bobby passed away at 51, he's no age at all, and yeah, I think at that stage as well, he you know, his his profile was was growing. Then on, you know, from a football point of view, on the broadcasting side, and who knows what would have happened from then on, because um, you know, to come ill and and then pass away at that age, I was lucky with a variety of things that opened up afterwards. But here I am, sort of now coming up mid sixties, really still involved in that, and really lucky. Whereas Bob, you know, never got those opportunities because because he, he passed away so so young. So to, to be fair, you know, I don't think you can sort of compare what we've done, you know, playing and then afterwards because we we had two different little generations and two sort of lucky opportunities that happened for me, which you know might have uh, opened up later on for Bob. But of course, you know, he, he developed his illness at such a young age. David Gold. It wasn't done in those days. You think of all of the great stars of that time. They only emerged later on, you know. Um, I can't think of many stars that actually became, many football stars that became radio stars, television stars, or, you know, like a Trevor Brooking is today on the, on the F.A., um, even today, the FA, you know, apart from Trevor, Trevor Brooking and one, uh, one or two others, there aren't many that's brought in um, from the footballing world. Bobby was out of work, but opportunity soon knocked as sports editor on the Daily Sport. The newspaper owners at the time, David Sullivan, and here, David Gold. I remember meeting him and thinking, you know, he really, although we were thrilled to have him, thrilled to have him at the sport, you know, um, even if it was just for personal reasons, because remember, not only is he my England hero, but he's my West Ham hero. So uh, I'm uh, I'm very very fortunate in in sort of meeting um, such an iconic figure, uh, and having working for our company was uh, was wonderful. And and there he was, this very gentle, very modest man. Yeah, I think I think everybody treated him apart from us. I think everybody treated him poorly. His ghostwriter at the sport, Hugh Southen. When I was told this, and I, well, I mean, 
you know, dream come true, ridiculous thing to say. But it was. I mean, it literally, truly was. And he walked into the room, you know, and he, he, he kind of stopped. He stops the room, Chris. Everybody stops. Bobby just had this presence. And here I was as a 40-year-old middle-aged git, wandered over to him and said, I'm really pleased to meet you. I didn't know whether to call him Mr. Moore or Bobby, and in the end I finished up calling him uh, Bobby. And um, he, he said, very nice to meet you. Let, let's get on with it. I said, well, before we do that, uh, I, I've got this. And <laughs> I took this photo of him on the shoulder of his teammates at Wembley Adam Ford. He said, would you sign, please? <laughs> Not the most professional way of getting started. David Gold. It, it's still wonderful uh, to have somebody, you know, hey, I met Bobby Moore. I, I shook his hand. I had a conversation with him. I had a cup of coffee with him. We chatted about old times. How many people can say that they've done that to a, to such an iconic figure? Yeah, and, and I think I was very fortunate to be in the right place at the right time. And, uh, and in a way, one, uh, it was pleasurable for me. But two, it was also... When I look back, it was nice to have done something for a nice man. Eventually, Bobby got a chance to re-enter the game as a broadcaster with Capital Gold. His colleague, Jonathan Pearce. He loved being part of the team. Um, at that at that time, we, we ran Capital Gold very much on the same lines as the team. You know, we had our pre-season, we had our season, we had our Christmas do, we had our you know end of season bash. We 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 worked week to week. Um, we had a lot of young reporters coming through. Now most of them are working in television, and uh, Bobby was great with them. Very uh, good on commenta- commenting on defensive um, performances. Um, he, you know, he used to think he, he wanted defenders to play the way some some are playing now. Funny enough, he didn't want them ever to to lunge in with a challenge. Um, but what he would do is he, he you know he tell these younger reporters stories of, of the past and. The 60s, and uh, he, he, was, he just used to enchant people like that. And I think because, because of that, he increased their knowledge, their overall knowledge of the game. And so I think you know he was he was uh, you know he, he enriched your he enriched your experience and your knowledge of the game. I would say that. But right through his life, Bobby stayed true to his roots and remained good friends with the group of East London boys who had gone on to conquer the world. Harry Redknapp. Together, we all came to West Ham. You know, and all grew up as kids. Really, he was a few years older than me, but you know, we all we all became great friends. And uh, and all it was a close knit football club, West Ham. All, all London boys, really. Brian Deer. It was all friends. We was mates. We used to go around one another's house in the afternoon when we all lived at Home uh, Church and have a cup of tea in the afternoon or whatever. And you know, so parties and things. And all our kids grew up together. You know, we still see one another. Those are around, but. Not all the time, so you know you're never in anyone's back pocket. I mean, I'm 70 this year. I'm going to have a little function, and you know I'll invite the boys, those who are around want to come. But we're we're old, we're old boys now, aren't we? You know, I was one of the younger ones, 70. But as we know, Bobby was not to reach the age of 70. The diagnosis was known to Bobby by 1991, but he kept the prognosis to only his closest family. However, it was increasingly obvious, despite Bobby's protests that all was not well. Harry Redknapp. He came down to Bournemouth and spent a few days with us, with Stephanie, and uh, I could see that he wasn't well then, really. He'd lost a lot of weight, you know, and uh, I must admit, when I first saw him, I picked him up in Bournemouth.
Bournemouth. I, I, I felt very upset. I didn't really want to go. I, I got too upset when I saw him. The amount of weight he'd lost, his trousers rang off him. He was always had them great big legs, and and suddenly up the sea he'd lost a lot of weight. And he was, you know, but he never complained. He never said I'm not well. He just got on with it. That was Moro. He was just, just, just got on with it. Jeff Powell. He was doing, um, you know, his uh, his lap of honour, if you like. Um, I had lunch with him at the Royal Garden Hotel, where of course the team banqueted after winning the World Cup in '66 and came out and showed the trophy to the multitude. Um, he then went on to the England game of San Marino to commentate, and it was his intention to go to West Ham uh, the weekend following that game um, uh, to have a last look around the, the old place, and uh, he just wasn't uh, well enough to do so. He described himself as a bit tired. And, uh, yes, he would have liked to have gone, but... Uh, yeah, he, he he was coming uh, to the end then and just wasn't physically able to do so. Jonathan Pierce. He said come over to the house on Monday and do an interview. Uh, he was going to do two interviews. One one I was going to do for the radio and TV around the world and the other one that Jeff Powell was going to do for the newspapers. So I went out on the Monday and he was still very positive and he wanted he wanted people to think that um, <clears throat> that he believed he could beat the illness because he didn't want he didn't want people to give in if they had cancer. He wanted people to fight against it. So he didn't want to appear defeatist, even though he knew he was dying. Um, I don't think either he or I knew it was going to be so quickly from that moment. On the Wednesday, he went to Wembley. He was clear. He was fine during the game, absolutely fine. The newspapers, you know, the pictures that went around the world clearly shocked the world. Uh, and then uh, Stephanie, his wife, and, and I just decided that he shouldn't go to West Ham on the Saturday against Newcastle because we could with our camera lenses in his face and uh, we just didn't think it would it, it, it would be fitting and we thought it would be very upsetting for the family. So uh, and then I told him, I phoned him up and said I didn't think he should go. He said, you know, he respected me and didn't agree with the decision and, uh, and was, you know, quite happy with it. But so uh, he respected everything I'd always said to him and, uh, and, and that was it really. And I never, I never, sadly, I never got the chance to speak to him again. He was so incredibly positive, even in the last, even in the last days. He was, uh, he took it remarkably stoically and uh, very brave, incredibly brave man. I wish, I, I wish he was here today. Uh, I wish he'd lived to see my kids. I wish he'd lived to, you know, had more seen his grandchildren on, on uh, Roberta's side. I wish, you know, I wish he'd, I wish he was here today. And unfortunately, that that can't be it. Bobby Moore died at 6.36am on the 24th of February 1993. The world of football sank into a deep mourning. Television pictures around the world beamed images of Sir Jeff Hurst and Martin Peters cradling a floral number six tribute to Bobby into the centre of the Upton Park pitch. His statue now stands at Wembley overlooking fans as they journey up Wembley Way. 20 years after his death, he remains revered. Harry Redknapp. Bobby was, uh, he had a fantastic, amazing football brain. He was, uh, he read situations. If you looked at Bobby and you'd, you'd have gone and watched him play as a scout, you'd have probably come back and said, well, he's, he's not good in the air. He's not quick. Uh, he's not over-aggressive. You know, you'd have gone, well, hang on, this is, we're talking about a central defender, you know? But what he did, he read the game. His reading of the game was incredible. He was always in the right place to deal with situations that even before they developed. It was always 
I always thought he was seconds ahead of everybody else in his reading of the game. He got in the right position to deal with danger. And he was a class act on the field, off the field. He was just a fantastic, fantastic person. Uh, you never saw him kicking anybody or, or having aggravation. Anyway, it was always, he just got on with the game, played the game, great sportsman. Just a fantastic ambassador for, for English football, really. Mark Hunter. It's impressive what we're able to achieve while he was there. You know, I think he'd be one of those names that'll always be known at West Ham, whether you're a kid that ever got to see him or not. Um, you'll definitely always know who Bobby Moore is. Jonathan Pierce. He was a master of the steel tackle. Uh, you know, he used to steal the ball, very rarely went to ground. Do you remember the fantastic tackle in Mexico in 1970 against Chelsea, but also in the 70. Uh, five cup finals wasn't it, against um, 74-75 against Fulham uh, West Ham Fulham when he, he, he nicked the ball there he was fantastic at that art he was a fantastic passer of the ball but he was just the way he led people let alone the West Ham and England team so I, I think you know he's, no, he's you know Beckham Baron Pelle have said that, he's, that he was the best defender ever and uh, he was certainly the best defender I ever saw play Ben Shepherd. Uh, he was and will always be the true legend of the game and uh, sorely missed every day that he's not here. He was robbed from a society young and age, but he still had a huge influence to play uh, on English football and world football indeed. An absolute legend. Russell Brand. Bobby Moore, for West Ham players, that's why so hugely significant. He's like one of the best players that there's ever been, one of the best players, the best player England's ever had, and like, sort of, you know, worthy of retiring the number six shirt. I look over there every time I'm up park into that sort of corner through the north bank and the old chicken mud where there's a sort of hole and there's that post there number six, you know, legend, Bobby Moore. For me, even when I write the number six on the list, someone think it's belonging to Bobby Moore. David Gold. But, you know, as I say, at the time, I just think it was all under, underdone. I thought West Ham actually you know, should have done more during his lifetime. It was, um, much was done after his death which I think was disappointing. But no, no, we rephrase that. Not disappointing that it was done after his death. It's just that I'd like to have seen more done during his, um, after he's finished his footballing career until, until he died. I think more should have been done. Ian Dale. And the fact that half of the people who go to Upton Park every other Saturday to watch our team play never saw Bobby Moore play, yet still, tribute to him in, in the most amazing way, I think does it all. Upton Larks and the KUMB forum writes, my abiding memory of a man was as a 10 year old at West Ham, as I walked up the steps of the concourse at half time, looking up to the upper tier and seeing Bobby stood up in his seat looking down. I just froze and must have looked like a rabbit in the headlines. Having never watched him play, he was still to me some kind of mystical superstar and boy did he still look it. He noticed me, smirked and gave me a wink. Such a special moment for me, that. Beckton on the KUMB forum writes, I can still see the image of the floodlights bouncing off his blonde locks. He looked like a god. Best Charlton and Law stuffed on the day. Hammer sandwich. My favourite memory was a Wembley when he played for Fulham. Of course we won 2-0. The memory was how Billy Bonds and Frank Lampard made a beeline for Bobby, much the same as Pele did. I can honestly say that I don't think any of our supporters would have begrudged Bobby a winner's medal. Chicken Run Supreme on the KUMB forum. Bobby was my childhood hero. He was the reason I nagged my dad for two years before he finally relented and took me to my first game. 
As happy as I was in 1975 when Bonzo lifted the FA Cup, it was tinged with sadness that Bobby was on the losing side that day. I remember exactly where I was when I heard the shattering news he had died on my car radio and I burst into tears, uncontrollable, as if it was a close relative and it was a travesty that he was never knighted whilst alive. It is time that wrong was righted. And Cornet writes, both my kids are West Ham obviously, and my son's called Bobby, who is eight. And is Bobby Moore mad and watches documentary too often for me as it's a tearjerker. When asked his name, it's always Bobby, named after Bobby Moore. He was my friend as well as the greatest defender I ever played against. The world has lost one of its greatest football players and an honourable gentleman, Pele. Billy Bonds, the whole country will be saddened, but no more than in the East End. We talk about superstars, but he was a genuine article. I followed him up the steps at Wembley three times. It was a privilege to have spent most of my career playing alongside him. He made himself a great player, and the bigger the stage, the better he performed. If the world had played Mars, he would have been man of the match. Jeff Hurst. So Alf Ramsey, if people say England would not have won the World Cup without me as manager, I can say it would have been impossible without Bobby as captain. In so many ways, he was my right-hand man, my lieutenant on the field, a cool, calculated footballer I could trust for my life. Thank you very much for listening. We've got even more special things lined up going forward on this podcast, so please get on Twitter and follow Chris on CJ Skull and that's Skull with a C and myself on Long as One and use the hashtag KUMB. We've got something of a KUMB campaign on the horizon, so more of that very soon. And a huge thank you to Harry Redknapp, Hugh Southam, Mark Hunter, Brian Deere, Russell Brand, The Gentleman, Tom Gent, Sir Trevor Brooking, Glenn Lavery, David Gold, Paul Stringer, Jonathan Pierce, Jeff Powell, Ben Shepherd, Ian Dale, and of course, the fine people at Radioville. Bobby Moore, 646 appearances and 27 goals for West Ham United. 108 appearances and two goals for England. 90 appearances as captain of England. West Ham Player of the Year 1961, 1963, 1968, 1970. FA Cup winner 1964. European Cup Winners Cup winner 1965. World Cup winning captain 1966. Player of the World Cup Tournament 1966. BBC Sports Personality of the Year 1966. Awarded the OBE 1967. Voted in an FA poll by fans as England's greatest player of the last 50 years. From Jeff Powell's inscription on the base of his statue at Wembley Stadium. Immaculate footballer. Imperial defender. Immortal hero of 1966. First Englishman to raise the World Cup aloft. Favourite son of London's East End. Finest legend of West Ham United. National treasure. Master of Wembley. Lord of the game. Captain extraordinary. Gentleman of all time.